through 28, starting at verse 16. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered to the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and Wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and the tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord And Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, 
save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That is indeed a lovely hymn. It's called Baptism Hymn Number 3. That's its title. Uh, It was written by Joseph Stennett, who was a Baptist pastor in uh, the early 1600s. He wrote 12 or 13, I can't remember off the top of my head, of those hymns that were meant to be sung at baptismal services. And you'll see in that song, I encourage you to go back and read the words. A new song is sometimes hard to get all the content of the words, but uh, you'll see that we're singing to the baptism candidate. He is a candidate of uh, both grace uh, and uh, baptism. Uh, And so there's some really interesting things he does in that hymn that I would just encourage you to look at and ponder. It's a good and useful thing. We're talking about baptism today. I I was baptized, so-called, as a baby. I had water sprinkled on me in a religious service. I'll make an argument that wasn't a baptism. Um, I was saved and baptized in a church that practiced baptismal regeneration. I'll explain what that is a little later. I pastored for a couple of years in a denomination that did not require baptism. And about 25 or so years ago, I became a very, very convinced Baptist. (laughs) This is a Baptist church, in case you did not know. It's not in our name. We're Grace Fellowship Church. We are a Baptist church. We're part of a Baptist fellowship of churches. We are Baptist. And so I am happy to talk about baptism. But I'm telling you my personal history because I think I personally cover all the potential bases. <laughs> there was a season when I was not baptized, it was short, and then I was sprinkled with water as a baby, and uh, then I was baptized as a believer, but in a church that kind of had an odd practice in theology. So wherever you are, that's fine. I've probably been there too, is what I'm saying. So I just want to comfort you with that and uh, bring you along with me to what I think the Bible teaches. Uh, I made the assertion last week that I think Reformed Baptist elder-led congregationalism is the formula one of all churches. Uh, There are other churches out there, but I think what we are seeking to do here is the F1, the Formula One, it's the bee's knees, it's the what we're aiming for. And what we're trying to do is look at what that is to make sure we all understand. I mean, honestly, 30% of our members are new in the last couple of years, and so we're we're just not going to assume that everybody understands everything. And even as elders, our understanding has been sharpened and refined. And so today, I want to look at baptism. And I'm, I'm sort of envisioning this series, we'll see if this stays true, I'm kind of envisioning it as, a, as chronological for the person. In other words, you're converted, you're baptized, you join the church as a member, you participate in the Lord's Supper, and then you either leave the church through a transfer or your own death or, God forbid, uh, discipline, which removes you uh, where the church can say, where the church has to say, we can no longer affirm you're a Christian by the way that you're living. So that's how I'm kind of thinking we're going to progress through the Sundays, which means we're starting right here with conversion, with baptism. And in particular, um, I want to think about today what baptism is, what, what, what happens when someone's baptized, why it's necessary, and then how it relates to the gathering of Christ's people. So we won't get to all the passages that speak to this. I intend to come back to this again next week. But I'm going to focus on two passages. You can open to Acts 19 right now, but then we're going to really look at Matthew 28 and Acts 2. They're kind of a progression on uh, showing you how this worked itself out in the early church. Those, those two books, Matthew and, and Acts, are what are called narrative. They're narrating a history. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look more at the didactic books, the teaching books, the books where, say, an apostle is writing and saying, this is what this means. He's explaining what it means. So we're going to look at these two. And I'm telling you all this again just because it's my request that you would grant patience to me. If I was to tell you everything the Bible says about baptism, 
you would be going home sometime tonight around 8 p.m. and you would not be leaving between now and then. So you should thank me that I'm spreading this out over several weeks. So my goal today is to lay the good foundation and then we'll build on that foundation as we go. So we're taking our F1 car and we're backing it into the garage. We're not completely remodeling. We're just fine-tuning. Let's fine-tune. Number one will be this. Baptism is an initiation Right, R-I-T-E, right, means uh, uh, a thing that is done. <laughs> That's a bad definition, but it'll do for now. So we know that baptism, just, just as a thing, baptism was understood by the people in which it was first instituted. We know that for the Jewish people. How can we be so sure? John the Baptist, <laughs> or John the Baptizer. So John just appears out of nowhere in the wilderness and he starts calling people to repentance and he begins baptizing them in the Jordan River. And that is a sign of them preparing themselves to receive Messiah. And we should ask the question, why baptism? We're not told other than this baptism served as a kind of public display of personal cleansing and personal renewal or commitment. So one thing we're absolutely sure about is that John the Baptist's baptism was not Christian baptism. That's clarified for us. We'll get to Acts 19. Uh, Paul makes his first stop there in Ephesus, and he finds men there who'd been under John the Baptist's ministry and had gone back to Ephesus They obviously believed what John said. What did John say in his ministry? This is Luke 3.16. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That was John's message. These Ephesian guys believed that. They just got that. They must have been, well, we know they were baptized by John. They go back to Ephesus. But they must have never heard John say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They never heard about Jesus. They never heard about the one who's, specifically whose sandal, John says, I'm not worthy to untie. And so when Paul gets to these guys in Ephesus and he begins talking with them, he asks some clarifying questions. And in that process, he makes, he makes it very clear that John's baptism was a baptism of cleansing, preparatory, and not the same thing as Christian baptism. So this is Acts 19, verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, probably of John, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Interesting question. And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, for our purposes here, all I want you to observe is that everybody had this basic idea of what baptism was as a thing. So we'll continue here in a second, but all I'm trying to argue from this passage is that people seeing another human being immersed in water in a religious ceremony would automatically understand that signifies a cleansing and a commitment. At its core, that is what a baptism is both to the person being baptized and to those observing. The person receiving baptism is admitting a need to be washed and is publicizing an intention to live a new way. And since that was widely understood, it's never particularly explained in these narrative passages. John just shows up and he starts doing it. But his baptism is not Christian baptism. Look at verse 3. Paul said, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, and we assume Paul said more than just that sentence. When you're reading Acts, often you get just an encapsulated summary of it. But on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they'd had John the Baptist baptism, but now they need Christian baptism. All I'm trying to point out, however, is that baptism is an initiation rite. Number two, 
Christian baptism is an initiation rite that comes after your conversion. It follows conversion. What is conversion? Conversion is a person being saved. God saves people. God does all of it. But that person exercises faith in God. They repent from their sins. They put their trust in Jesus Christ. And that trust means they, they know the facts of the gospel. They, know, they believe the facts of the gospel are true. And most importantly, they believe on the person of Jesus. That's true saving faith. You can, you can know the facts of the gospel. You can even believe the gospel facts are true and still not be saved. Just knowing they're true is not enough. You've got to act upon them. You've got to act upon them. And so you have to put your personal faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And after they trust Christ, they publicize this newfound faith in baptism, being immersed into water. I'll give you one example, just to read it to you from Acts 16. There's lots of them in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts 16, verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So if you're listening carefully, she heard the gospel. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. She believed it. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to, which is just another way of saying to put her faith in Christ. And then after this, she was baptized. In every case of baptism in the book of Acts, you can look them up, there is some clear reference to conversion coming first. In other words, there is not a single example of someone getting baptized against their will, as someone getting baptized is just a mere religious exercise, of a baby getting baptized, or even a child who's incapable of understanding the gospel getting baptized. There's not a single example of this. If you're thinking, household, household, come to the sermon Q&A and I'll talk to you about that. But in every case, God saves a person first and they respond to the gospel preaching. And their primary command, once you have repented from your sins and put your trust in Christ, is to be baptized. And the reason for that is really, really simple. And now we go to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. So this is Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, speaking to his at this point, church, which is primarily his 11 disciples and some other women and others, but he's speaking specifically to the 11 here, and he says, verse 16, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. It's the resurrected Jesus, and you're still doubting. You think, oh, how could you? Do you ever doubt, friend? He's just as resurrected today as he was then. Anyway, they doubt. And Jesus came and said to them, these are words that get rid of doubt. That's why I pointed it out. <laughs> All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is a staggering statement. This is what Paul is praying for later to the Ephesians. Remember, we looked at Ephesians 1.22, and, and Paul's praying that the eyes of their heart would be opened so they could see that God has put all things under Christ's feet and given him his head over all things to his ecclesia, to the church. So not only has all authority been granted to Christ, Christ, the authoritative Christ, has been given to the church and now, as our authoritative ruler and our king, he gives marching orders. So he tells his ecclesia, his gathered ones, you go out now and tell other people about me. This is verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And with that little word, go, King Jesus declares that his religion is no longer bound to one ethnic identity. Although he himself is Jewish, his people are not going to be constituted by ethnic Jews alone. 
He, he will be taking disciples from every single nation, which is the happy thing about living in Toronto because we get to see a little bit of that, don't we? Every ethnicity, whatever, whatever way you want to categorize people, King Jesus is going to be broadcasting his gospel through his church to every human soul everywhere. And as that gospel is broadcast, converts will be made, People are going to be born again, just like Lydia was, and they will become disciples of King Jesus. That means they're going to eventually align their lives to him. They'll adopt the values and the rules of his kingdom. And the oath sign of that transfer of allegiance is getting immersed in water. It's Christian baptism. I've been cleansed from my guilt and my sins. I'm making public announcement of my intention to follow Jesus. Some of you have recently become Canadian citizens. You emigrated here from Iran or Egypt or South Africa or the United States of America. I'm trying to think if I missed you, I'm sorry. Uh, But you applied for and you were then granted citizenship of Canada. And you are a Canadian. You are a Canadian through and through. I was born here, I'm a Canadian. You are just as much a Canadian as me. And in your becoming a Canadian, you participated in a swearing-in ceremony. I'm just curious, who here has been to, done a swearing-in ceremony to become a Canadian? Just kind of cool if you just raise your hands. Yeah. Yeah. So you did that swearing-in ceremony. That was the culmination of the process, right? Your initiation into the citizenship or the ecclesia of Canada was that swearing-in ceremony where you, you, you take on all the rights, responsibilities, privileges that come with being Canadian. This is very similar to Christian baptism. And Jesus makes this clear in Matthew 28 that baptism is an initiation sign of being a new citizen of his kingdom. It is, in the example I just gave, our swearing-in ceremony as Christians. So verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Christian baptism is Trinitarian baptism. That's why when we baptize someone, we say these words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And following this baptism, the process of discipleship begins. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I think it's useful to note the order here. The call to have your life formed and shaped by the word of Jesus, all that I have commanded you, comes after the primary call to be baptized. There's a reason for that. There is an order to this. If you are trying to progress in the Christian life, in the teaching, as he calls it here, without having been baptized, you're, you're kind of, it's like you're trying to ride a bike with no wheels. There is a first things first. First put the wheels on the bike. First get baptized. If you feel like you're not progressing in the Christian life, I am not surprised because you're not obeying and God never rewards disobedience. So the gospel is preached People repent and believe. They somehow make this known to the ecclesia. They are baptized. They are instructed in how to live as new citizens of the kingdom of Christ. And then King Jesus ends where he started. Look at verse 20. Behold, I am with you. Who? The church. I'm with you, ecclesia. I'm with you always to the end of the age. Why does he start and finish with these assurances. I think in part because this kind of work does not proceed in the world without opposition. (laughs) Lots of opposition. But we don't have to worry. King Jesus is the all-powerful ruling king, and he is with his people, his ecclesia, his church, until he comes back again when he will gather his people to himself. And so this is the commission that Jesus gives his disciples, and this is exactly what the disciples do. Now turn to Acts chapter 2, because that's just like days later, Acts chapter 2. The Great Commission ends. We jump into the book of Acts, and what are these 11 disciples doing? They're doing the Great Commission. (laughs) So Acts chapter 2, they preach the gospel. Peter did that in Jerusalem. 
Uh, a sermon that Patrick read for us and ends with verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And this very direct preaching of their sin and Jesus, the only solution to that sin, elicits a response, verse 37, when they heard this, that whole big long sermon, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Cut to the heart. They were convicted of their sin. They knew that they were guilty before God. Some of these people were probably part of that mob who were shouting to put Jesus to death. Imagine what that was like. Imagine the guilt you were experiencing now listening to Peter's preaching. But if anybody on the planet knows that guilt's not enough, it's Peter. And so he preaches for faith in the person of Jesus, repentance from sin, faith in Jesus. And that's repeated all through the book of Acts. If that's new to you, just I, I would challenge you. You can find the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, take one of ours home with you. Just look it up in the front index, Acts. And just see, there's 28 chapters. If you read a chapter a day, you're done in a month. It's simple to read. And you'll just see over and over again the same messages being preached. And God does something in so many people's hearts. Look at verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I just want to hover over verse 38 for a moment because it can sound like Peter is contradicting himself. Like he's saying, repent and believe on Jesus in order to be saved, and you got to get baptized in order to be saved. And that introduces us to one of the really important observations about baptism. Conversion and baptism were so tightly bound that when speaking of one, you could be speaking of both. This is actually a very common figure of speech in English, too. We do this all the time. We say something like, if I'm president, and I say, well, we're going to put boots on the ground. And we all know what that means. It doesn't mean, maybe you've seen the comics where they dump boots on the enemy. It's not what it means. It's a figure of speech where the one stands in for the whole. A soldier wears boots. I'm just identifying the boots, and so I'm going to get those boots. We're going to put soldiers into the conflict, boots on the ground. Or your friend texts you, and he says, dude, come outside and check out my new wheels. Now, kids these days, maybe it is the actual tires. I don't, I don't understand this fascination with tires. But mostly what we mean by that is come out and see my new what? My new car. So the, the wheels stand in the place for the whole. Baptism often stands in the place for the entire conversion experience because it's so tied to that initial conversion. Let me give you a really quick example of this. Just listen to the words of Galatians 3 and verse 26. Paul's writing to these Christians. He says, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith, period. Next verse. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So here in one verse, faith. In the next verse, baptized. Each represents the whole. Either one of those words is a kind of shorthand to describe what it means when a man or a woman repents from their sins and believes on Jesus Christ as their Savior. It would be similar for saying, I got saved. Let me give you a couple more examples of this so you can see what I'm talking about where one word stands in for the whole. Listen to Acts 4 and verse 4. Many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. Well, in, in that context, there's no reference to the, the word repentance is not there. But obviously, it's there. They were repenting. It's just the word is not used. Believe stands in for the whole. I'll give you another example. Paul preaching on Mars Hill in Acts 17, verse 30. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Well, there's no mention of belief here, no mention of faith here, just Repentance. But obviously, the command to repent in this context includes the idea of putting one's faith in the person of Jesus. So there is a sense where any Christian can refer to his entire conversion experience with a single word. I repented. I believed. 
I was born again, and even I was baptized. This is called synecdoche in English. And if you don't know what that means, don't worry, neither did I. I even have to like write out how to pronounce it. So I, but if you, if you want a, a term, that's what it is, where one word stands in for the whole of something. Why am I taking time to point this out to you? Because it's really going to, I'll tell you three reasons. One, it, it's a very common thing in your Bible. Two, it will help you understand what Peter is saying in Acts 2. We are, we're still in Acts 2. And thirdly, it will begin to show you that baptism can't be parceled out from conversion as a kind of optional add-on. Like you're at the car dealer and you're like, yeah, you know what, I don't want heated seats. Well, it's, not like a, it's not like you can say, well, I, I want to be a Christian but without the baptism. So these first few texts are beginning to make clear that the Bible never conceives of an unbaptized Christian. Someone remaining in that state. Other than somebody like the thief on the cross. And it wasn't on purpose, but I'm so glad I preached that first. It was just one of the kind providences of the Lord. Who's the thief on the cross? A person who has been providentially prohibited from obeying the command to be baptized. And that thief proves the point that baptism is not something that must occur in order to be saved. That's really, really important. But it's the tiny exception to the rule. God saved me when I was 15 years old. Opened my eyes to see the Lord Jesus. I repented of my sins, put my trust in him. And I recall a conversation I had with an elder of the church I attended where I was baptized. This happened after my baptism, and I was starting to hear some teaching. It wasn't taught to me before my baptism, thankfully. And, uh, and so I asked the elder this, this question. I said, so you're telling me that if, if I came to you elders and I said I would like to be baptized, and, and it was, you know, Thursday night, and we jumped in the car to drive to the church for the baptism or the lake or whatever, and we're on our way there in the car. I've expressed my faith in Christ, and I'm intending to be baptized, and we get creamed by a semi on the way there. We all die that I'm going to hell because I haven't been put in the water. And he looked at me and said, yeah. This is called baptismal regeneration, that you are not saved until you come up out of the physical water. Widely held by the Kembalites, uh, some of the Church of Christ in, in our area. And it is a, uh, it's a very dangerous doctrine because it makes salvation dependent on what? On, on works, on a work, on something we do or something some human does to you. Which makes this a lovely time to remember Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Nobody can say, I got, to my, I got myself to heaven by my baptism. I got myself to heaven by whatever. You get to heaven by Jesus. So we got to keep that idea in mind as we're reading Acts 2. So now here we are hovering over Acts 2.38. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter here, what's he doing? You read his whole sermon. He is calling for repentance and faith in Jesus. And this change of heart allegiance will result in participating in the outward sign of that conversion, which is being immersed in water. What is a sign? A sign signifies. It signifies. It is pointing to, it's, it's reflecting a reality. Peter is not for one second implying that people were unsaved until the application of water, and he makes that really, really clear in the letter he wrote. So this is what he says in 1 Peter, which he wrote much later. He starts with 1 Peter 3.21, baptism now saves you. That's alerting. (laughs) Baptism, which corresponds to this, corresponds to what? Noah and the ark. You can read it, 1 Peter 3. But he says, baptism now saves you not the removal of dirt from the body. In other words, not the actual act of, what's, of you being you know, washed with water, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's Peter saying? It's, in other words, repentance from sin and faith in Jesus. But Peter can write this way and he can preach this way because, and here's the kicker, 
Peter cannot conceive of someone claiming allegiance to Jesus and not being baptized. That's not even a mental category for him, or for that matter, for any other biblical author. It is a situation so completely unheard of and inconceivable, it's never even addressed in the Bible, except, incidentally, by the thief on the cross. There's no verse, what I'm saying, there's no verse that says, uh, you know, Christians in Smyrna, you really... um, you really shouldn't stay in this state of unbaptism. You really should get baptized. That's, that's never addressed. Because, and I think because the concept itself was inconceivable. You, you need to understand that salvation, we have to think in terms of salvation, it's kind of like a, the bundle from your telecom provider. Like you may, you may not want cable, but you get it anyway because it's cheaper than not getting the cable. Like it all comes together. Conversion, faith, repentance, baptism, it all be seen as one thing. And any one of those words can be used to represent the whole. All salvation is by grace, right? We're being very clear about that. It's not your baptism that saves you. Christ saves you. But these things are so tightly tied together, it would be inconceivable to any apostle that you would claim to be a Christian and purposefully remain unbaptized. To say, I believe but I'm not getting baptized, would be just as inconceivable to the apostles as someone saying, I believe, but I'm not repenting. In other words, you can't pick cable and internet and skip the cell phone plan. It's a bundled deal, and that's a gloriously wonderful thing. And that makes this a really good time to address the elephant in the room. You say you're a Christian but you're not baptized. What I mean by baptized here is not being sprinkled as a baby. I mean Christian baptism. The word means to dip or to immerse. It means you you have not been immersed in water by an agent of Christ's ecclesia in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit after you've been born again and knowing it. So I'm, I'm speaking to you if you say you're a Christian, but you are not baptized. Children, I am not speaking to you now. I will be speaking to you in the weeks to come, but I am not speaking to you now, so don't pay attention. (laughs) I'm speaking to you if you are, I'm just going to pick an age. Don't imply anything by this. I'm just trying to make my example really clear. Let's say you're 21 years of age and older, because that seems to be like the adult age in Canada, whatever. You're 21 or older. You claim that you've been born again but you're refusing, I want to be, listen carefully, you're refusing or resisting, avoiding, not prioritizing, getting baptized. You don't go to a baptism class. We got one on Wednesday night. Just throwing that out there. Um, But I'm, I'm talking to you. You know the Bible. You know what it says, and you're just avoiding thinking about it. If that's you, okay, you're, you're an adult, you're of sound mind and ability, and you're just rejecting, refusing to be baptized, I doubt you're really a Christian. I don't mean I doubt like a, as a personal opinion, like I doubt the Maple Leafs are going to do anything this year. That's personal opinion. I mean we cannot conceive how you can claim to be a follower of Jesus when you're actively refusing to, do the, to just do one of the clearest commands he gives. That make sense? It's difficult for us to conceive how you can portray yourself or call yourself to be a believer if you're refusing to do one of the clearest things God commands. This is not a Baptist thing. I was out to lunch with my Presbyterian pastor friend, and I, I ran this thought by him, and he said, yeah, it would be exactly the same for us. We would never affirm the faith of someone who refused what they would call baptism. This is the one place where Baptists and Presbyterians agree on the necessity of baptism. Remember who I'm talking to. I'm not talking to you of tender conscience. I'm speaking to you who are just deciding you're not going to do it. And all I'm saying is, I won't be able to affirm your profession of faith because you're rejecting and you're not doing the one thing God has made very clear you need to do. 
that refusal to get baptized, in my example, is a little bit like, uh, you know, texting your ex-boyfriend as you're walking down the aisle to marry the other guy, saying, I love you so much. No, your, your actions betray your heart allegiance. I understand being nervous about baptism. It's one of the reasons I wanted us to learn this new hymn. It, if you read the hymn, you'll, you'll see that part of it is singing to the people that are being baptized and saying, hey, we know what that's like. There, there's a, I don't want to call it nerves. There's, there's a sense of, you know, in your baptism, you're standing up and saying, I'm a sinner. <laughs> and it's not shameful, but it's exposing. You're being honest about needing a savior. And you're being honest about counting the cost. I'm planting my flag with King Jesus. Which means if you claim to be a Christian and you've, you've not done anything, like nothing to seek baptism, then you need to ask yourself, am I really a Christ follower? If anyone would come after me, said Jesus, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Are you truly born again, my unbaptized friend? You might be. But there's no way for any of us to tell. Why not put all those fears and misgivings to rest and plant your flag with King Jesus? Listen to what he said, Matthew 10, 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Isn't that glorious? But listen to what comes next. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. My unbaptized friend, you say you're a Christian, he hung naked on a cross for you. Aren't you willing to suffer a little bit of embarrassment for him? He gave up his perfect life for your sinful life. Will you not publicly identify with him? The only good reason to not be baptized is if you are not a Christian. If you're saved, the first act of formal obedience to King Jesus is to be sworn into his kingdom. As a citizen, get baptized. That's true for every person everywhere. And that offer of this, this great gift is to be extended to all kinds of people, right? Acts 2, look at verse 39. For the promise is for you, for your children, that means all your descendants, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So conversion to Christ and baptism go together. But there's a little bit more to be seen here, and it comes in verse 41. My third point, baptism is an initiation rite that follows conversion and leads to membership in the church. Look at verse 41. So, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, this last verse is one of the first indicators of formal church membership. You don't see the word membership. Um, membership in the, the, the concept of membership in the New Testament is a little bit like the concept of Trinity. The word is not used the way we use it, but the theology is there. And this is one of the first little indicators. We're going to see more as we go, but this is a good hint at the very least. Look at what's happening here. They knew who the Christians were. Those Christians were added to the other Christians, and it came very close to their baptism. They all sort of went together. Why? Because the Bible, just as the Bible, never conceives of a true Christian not getting baptized, unless you're thief on the cross category, that extremity, neither does it conceive of a Christian not being made a member of the local church, other than one exception. Do you know what it is? Ethiopian, eunuch. Philip miraculously intervened happens to be reading Isaiah 53, mm -hmm. uh, and then shares the gospel with him. He's converted. Look, here's water, baptized, not made a member of a church because he's going to Ethiopia where there is no church. And so he needs to go there and start a church. He needs to tell other people about Jesus. As soon as there's two of them, bingo, boingo, you got your church. As a general rule, 
Everyone who is saved is baptized, and everyone who is baptized is a member. Andrew Fuller, writing years ago, said, Whatever may be said of baptism as it is now generally understood and practiced and of the personal religion of those who practice it, it was originally appointed to be the boundary of visible Christianity. The boundary of visible Christianity. That's a very, very helpful phrase. The visible gathering, the visible ecclesia is marked off and identified by baptism. Now, this highlights one of these areas where we've become increasingly convinced our church practice is slightly out of line with biblical teaching. I shall call this mea culpa number one. I said that to my staff this week, and they all said, what does mea culpa mean? I thought everybody knew what that meant. It means my bad, all right, my fault. I told you last week that when we planted Grace Fellowship Church, I initiated all the first practices. I was the pastor. There were no other elders until such time as uh, my brother Murray became an elder, and there were the two of us. But most, if not all, of these practices had already been established. One thing I was deeply concerned about was establishing a church with meaningful membership where members understood their responsibilities and lived them out wholeheartedly. And in my mind, one of the best ways to elevate membership was to separate it from baptism. This was my idea, my invention. And I was doing this because I observed some churches that, in my opinion, had very meaningless membership. And my analysis was, well, that's because they just make everybody they baptize a member. You need, to, you need to make membership mean more, so we'll separate baptism and membership. This was 33-year-old church planter Paul's idea. Little, what, little did I understand at the time that this invention was contrary to pretty clear teaching in the Scriptures and running afoul of centuries of Baptist practice. I promise you, I was not trying to. <laughs> But I believe that move was out of line and detrimental. There's many ways it's detrimental, one of which is um, as a church we could baptize someone and then they remain in this odd limbo state of baptized but non-member and then they fall into sin. There's nothing we can do. We can appeal to them, but there's no process of church discipline. You can't take, move someone out of something they are not in. So our elders believe baptism ought to be joined with membership. You're not baptized into membership. We never want to say that. That's the wrong way of saying it. You're baptized into Christ. But baptized into Christ should almost in every case, other than those frontier mission cases, mean you're being joined to the membership of the church that baptizes you. Why? Well, we start with this, the the very strong hint that's found in Acts chapter 2. There's more, but let's just look at this one, verse 41. So those who received his word and were baptized were added that day about 3,000 souls. So conversion, they received his word. Baptism, apparently on the same day of conversion, and then they were added to. That word added to means add to an existing quantity. So the question is, what is the quantity they were added to? And, of course, it's all the saints who made up the Jerusalem ecclesia, the Jerusalem church. The only, by the way, ecclesia at that moment in history. So being added meant being made a part of the gathering, the ecclesia of all of Christ's disciples. Luke has already told us there are about 120 of them. This is Acts chapter 1 and verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons wasn't all about 120. 120, and then on this day, add 3,000. 120 plus 3,000 equals terrifying church growth. (laughs) That's a sudden surge of members. But all I'm trying to show you is that there was a quantity, a numbering of souls to whom the 3,000 were added, meaning there was an identifiable gathering, an identifiable church, and hence an identifiable membership, a membership now of 3,120 or so souls. And this idea carries forward as the story in Acts unfolds. So if you just turn ahead for a second to Acts 5, look at verse 12. Now, this is after the very sudden and sorrowful death of Ananias and Sapphira, 
Acts 5, verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Let's just think through that for a moment. Verse 12, who's the they? They were all in Solomon's portico. Well, that's all who had been baptized and joined themselves to join themselves to Christ's gathering, his ecclesia. How do we know that? Because everyone who gets saved is getting baptized to become a member of the ecclesia. And that's affirmed by the way Luke notes this very interesting other group. Uh, look at verse 13. None of the rest dared join them. Now, I don't think he's using the word join there in the sense of joining as members. I think what he's saying there is you've got these people who... Um, they kind of like being around the fringes. They like being around the edges. They like the teaching of Jesus, maybe like the community of church life. But they're not so interested in being converted and baptized. And then verse 14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Added to the Lord, just another way of saying added to Christ's ecclesia. If you're, if you're added to Christ, you're added to his church. So what's happening? In Christian baptism, you're stepping off team world and you're you're joining team Jesus, the ecclesia of Jesus. All I'm trying to show you, there's no in-between zone where it's just you and Jesus, man, flying solo and uncommitted to other human beings. Unless you're like the Ethiopian eunuch who has no church to go to and is going back to a place where there is no gospel witness and you're taking it there. So you got people... I think what's happening here in Acts 5, it's opening up this really important cultural reality for us. People are hanging around the edges, as it were. Luke says they're not daring to join with the church. Why does he say that, daring? What's so daring about becoming a Christian? Well, we're just a few weeks out from the crucifixion of Jesus. And not only that, go to Acts 4, Peter and John had just been arrested They've been, they've been threatened not to preach about Jesus anymore. There is intense cultural pressure to not identify with Jesus. I would suggest to you that getting baptized in Jerusalem in that day would be like getting baptized in Saudi Arabia today. You're a marked man. You're a marked woman. Well, there was a strong temptation to get around the gospel, get around the people of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, but stay unconnected at a safe distance from Jesus. Because if you're baptized and consequently made a member of the church, there's some really bad people who've got your number, and that's a real tangible threat. Those bad people finally find a way in Acts chapter 8. What do they do? Who do they attack? They don't attack the people in verse 13 there on the periphery. That's not who they're after. What does it say? They're not, they're not looking for the, the onlookers, the, the attenders. They attack the members, the church, the gathering of Jesus, the ecclesia of Jesus. This is Acts chapter 8, verse 1. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Development buried. Stephen made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So one way you and I are very different from this cultural setting is that in Toronto, I don't think anybody's going to try to kill you for identifying with Jesus. I mean, they might disown you. And based upon the religious background you're coming out of, they may even hold a funeral for you and say, you're dead to us. But it is almost inconceivable in Canada to think that your life would be in danger for publicly identifying with Jesus. In fact, there is still, at least for now, broadly speaking, amongst the average Joes of Canada, I think a fair bit of social capital for doing something like getting baptized, or you tell coworkers I'm getting baptized, and they, you know, oh, that's so good for you, uh, that thing. But there's still like a sense of approval. There's also a whole lot of Christian nominalism in Canada, 
And in our neck of the woods in Rexdale, there's a whole mountain of prosperity gospel churches and other churches that are going to baptize anyone and everyone without any kind of instruction or any kind of questioning about personal faith. Add in a little spice and dash of, of Western individualism and consumerism, and you end up with a lot of people thinking things like this. This baptism is all about me and Jesus. Or... I'll do this to make my fiance happy. Or, I'd like a little religion in my life. Or, anything to get my mom off my back. And you see, that difference of context is part of what gives us pause from immediately baptizing anybody who shows up at the door and says, I'm a Christian, baptize me. Our policy here is to baptize a new believer as quickly as possible and as instructed as possible, as knowledgeable of what they're doing as possible, and God willing, in the days ahead, prepared to join the church as a member. Closing that gap between baptism and membership also helps us correct a very odd thing in our member responsibilities. Members, you'll know this, uh, you vote on a member testimony. I'll talk about this when I get to the sermon on membership. The two responsibilities of members, make sure the gospel's preached and make sure the gospel's lived. That's the boil down membership. That's your responsibility. Make sure that from this desk the gospel goes forward, and if not, take the person out of here and put them away. And make sure the people that are coming in make a, a true gospel. They can say what the gospel is. And they're, they're living not a perfect life, but a life that shows that they are living out the gospel. These are the responsibilities of members. So the way it works here, when someone applies to become a member, they tell us, God has saved me. And then their testimony is given to all the members. And the members either affirm or reject that testimony, their, their gospel profession, their, their gospel possession. What are those people doing? They're saying, I know Jesus, I know the gospel, I'm living for him. And one of the great things about church membership is it affirms your profession of faith. A bunch of other people look at your life, they say, yes, amen, we can see the work of God in you. But in our current way of doing things, members vote on the validity of a person's testimony for membership. The elders alone make that decision and vote on that judgment when it comes to baptism. And that has always felt out of joint and makes the second step, the vote on membership, at best superfluous and at worst confusing. For instance, what if one week the elders decide to baptize Bob and then the next week the members vote not to bring Bob into membership? So joining baptism back to membership has the added beneficial outcome of involving all the members in every profession of faith. And we're not suggesting that members are now going to vote twice, once for baptism, once for membership. Rather, they're going to vote to accept Bob as a member pending his baptism. So we as the members of this local body affirm that the gospel you profess, Bob, lines up with the Bible. We see you living for King Jesus. We're eager to covenant with you once you're baptized, which is the first step of obedience for all who love King Jesus. I'll explain this more fully when we get to the sermon on membership. I'm pointing it out here because I want you to start to see how all these things are interconnected. I mentioned that this is the practice of Baptist churches historically. You don't need to look now, but on the back of your song sheet, I just harvested out some statements from ancient, well, ancient 400-year-old confessions of faith when the first English Baptists first started writing confessions of faith. And you'll see just some helpful things there. All right, what have we learned? Baptism, baptism is an initiation rite. Everybody's reading the, old, the, the, the confession quotes now. I can hear all the papers turning. You're not fooling anyone. Stick with me just for like 10 more seconds. What have we learned? Baptism, baptism is an initiation rite. It should follow closely after conversion. Baptism should bring a person into the membership of the local church. Anyone who is ready to be baptized is ready to be a member. Membership is not some higher plane of Christian existence. I think I can say this. I've been laboring. I'm, I'm toying. I may want to backpedal this. But I think what I want to say is we're born again into the universal church. We're baptized into the local church. But I want to put all kinds of like little 
footnotes and caveats there. But that's the basic idea. Next week, we're going to unpack more of the theology of baptism. What does it represent? What is it teaching? What does it mean? What does it represent? And how does it function in the life of a church? Now, maybe your experience of baptism was entirely different from this. Mine certainly was. But I'm motivated by what I see in God's word because I'm... I'm like over the hill, okay? So that means I'm going down the hill. I'm not sure that's an odd image, um, which means I'm kind of looking behind me. I want to leave Grace Fellowship Church in the best possible shape possible. And the elders would agree wholeheartedly. Whether it's us here for a long time or not, we want this church to be in the best possible shape. I'm inspired by what Thomas Walker, who was a co-worker with Amy Carmichael, he would turn to Amy and say this, let us build for the years we shall not see. And you see, that's why I'm taking the time to explain all this to you. Because you're probably going to be here longer than me. Especially you young adults. You need to own this stuff. You need to understand it. So that you can help it carry on. Let's make Grace Fellowship Church as close to that F1 fine-tuned ideal as we can. Not just for us, but for our children and our children's children. Let's pray. And so, Lord, take the scriptures that we have looked at today and give us understanding into them. Help us to live and to do all that you command. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.